real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Nathan Romas. Today, we're doing something a little bit different. So I hope you like it. I have retired Sergeant Ben Click back in studio. Ben's previous visit on the podcast can be found on episode 16. We covered a few of the topics we will talk about today. However, the prior episode was more broadly based. And in lead up to Remembrance Day, we thought we'd do a more in-depth discussion about service, what it means, and why it's important. So we're going to delve more into Ben's experiences in service through the military. We will talk about the training he took part in, the experiences in deployments and the battlefield, the people he met, worked with and lost, and we will look at the impacts, both mental and physical, of service. So welcome, Ben. Hey, thanks very much, Nathan. Yeah, thanks for what you're doing, for having me back. Yeah, so I'm glad we could get you back in so quick. Um, today, so we're, the previous episode, we had talked about uh, basically your whole lifespan. We covered mm-hmm. everything from growing up to military to your current uh, job where you help people learn how to shoot a rifle. And this is going to be much more focused um, on the service and the people that you uh, were involved with and a lot about your experience. So um, maybe we'll start at just why you got into the military for those who maybe haven't heard the previous episode. Yeah, sure, you bet. Uh, It was 1985, uh, fresh out of high school. I joined the Canadian Forces to go kill communists because it was the Cold War. And I stayed for just under 20 years, uh, served with the Prince Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, and predominantly a lot of my time was with the Canadian Airborne Regiment with two commando and a couple other subunits within that. And uh, retired in 2004 and uh, spent my days teaching mental performance and and, uh, shooting performance. Uh, I was, in 1985, I was just another farm boy uh, looking for an excitement to uh, off the farm. I always joke that I, I joined the infantry to get away from the farm so I didn't have to dig holes or string wire. And to my shock, uh, after 12 weeks of, of welcome to the army training in, in Cornwallis, Nova Scotia, the kind of boot camp you would expect, the how to salute, how to march, how the army works, first day, that kind of stuff. Uh, I went off for six fun-filled months in sunny Wainwright, Alberta for, for a winter and spent a lot of time digging holes and stringing wire, mm-hmm. uh, learned the basic skills of, of an infantryman, uh, spent just over a year or two in the 1st Battalion PPCLI down in Calgary, uh, got the uh, the opportunity to be on the uh, the Army Biathlon team skiing and shooting because that looked like a lot of fun, fitness and shooting, and uh, progressed through reconnaissance, uh, learned to fall out of airplanes in 87 or 88, and then went to the Canadian Airborne Regiment uh, for the next seven years. What uh, What does going up in an airplane for the first time look like? Like when you want to jump out of it, I should say. I'd you know I'd like to say it's it's some spiritual or psychic journey, but the reality <laughs> is it was. Uh, it's not that it was that it's something you do when you're super scared. It's just that we had been so extensively trained, and 
I think it's also part of my character that it, I, if I'm trained that way, I expect that's what's going to happen. And I'm going to stand in a door. I'm going to fall out. Gravity going to do its thing, and and it'll turn out all right. And the, the first time and the last time I did it with the military was kind of the same, mentally focused, but trusting in the people around me that they knew what they were doing. And I was able to do what I was going to do. And like I said, I, I never, I was never one of the guys that was tortured, stayed up all night the night before jump and worried about it mm-hmm. uh, because I had an expectation of what was going to happen. And, and by and large, that's exactly what happened, whether it was round parachute or later on uh, jumping higher altitudes of the square chute. You don't get yourself too worked up. You don't, uh, you don't dwell on it too much. No, beforehand. not. No, 21-year-old me was not a deep thinker by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, it, it was on, a lot on blind faith, I think. So when you went to the military, did you have a lot of support from family, friends back home? Uh, I did. And we have to remember this is, support came in the mail every couple of weeks and it had a stamp and it was a couple pages long. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the, the texts were kind of slow at the time. Um, I came from a strong military background and yet was never pressured, never felt pressured. And my father later told me that they explicitly never pressured uh, me to join the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet there it went. So uh, lots of support, but not not a lot of pressure. And one thing you mentioned in the prior uh, visit here was that your grandfather was in the armor uh, division. Mm-hmm. And that was in World War II. Two. Yeah. Uh, did he ever tell you any experiences about that, that maybe kind of led to you going into the military or affected your decision, what you did in the military? Yes and no. Uh, he spoke very little about it generally, uh, spoke very, almost nothing about it uh, before I joined the military. His, his sole words or advice were, don't go armored. Mm-hmm. He, was, uh, he was an armored guy, uh, but he, during training, discovered he was claustrophobic. So they gave him the really safe job of driving trucks full of ammunition and fuel around behind the tanks, you know, one, one hilltop behind the, the vehicles. Later on, after a few years in the military, very slowly, uh, he, after a few years of me being in the military, very slowly, small stories would come out from time to time. And uh, the reason, one of the reasons he, he wanted me to knock armored because the, the survival rate was extremely low mm. in his unit. Uh, his unit was more than seventy percent casualties in the first engagement. Wow. Uh, literally, he was able to hop from tank to tank that was destroyed in the battlefield, and he had to deal with the the human remains of his friends immediately after after wow. the battlefield. So, hmm. not a big fan of me going into tanks. Yeah, um, but there were certainly a few stories that were inspiring. Uh, and shaped my attitudes and beliefs. Uh, I am not a big believer and I will actively advocate against elitism. I believe that everybody that, uh, that is out there has a role, has a job, and is just as important. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather uh, only spoke of it once or twice, but uh, he was behind the tanks, one or two, what they call a tactical bound. So the F1 or the fighting echelon is, is the immediate needs of the tanks. There's a handful of medics. Uh, some ammo trucks and, and fuel trucks, and my grandfather's in one of them. And as battle swirled around, uh, they were no longer behind the, their, well, they were behind their tanks, but the line had moved around them and was flanking them. Mm-hmm. And it was my grandfather's courage that uh, uh, that prevented their tanks from being 
uh, flanked and engaged and destroyed. Um, and it was his, I, his humble service and his humble attitude towards what he did that kind of shaped my attitude, said, like, everybody's real. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, I can't remember if I mentioned it last time, but I'll repeat it now. Is, uh, I was sitting overseas in a, a tent, and I was in charge of the sniper section. And I met an old friend who was with our special operations group, and he was in, in charge of that. And we were sitting there, and we, we discovered that we had this similar attitude against elitism and, and how it could be corrosive and, and isolating. Uh, and the, some, poor, some poor dude who drove the, uh, the, uh, the blue rocket cleaner truck, mm. the big hydrovac soccer truck that had to come around and clean out all the, uh, the, uh, the portable outhouses, he came around and was doing his work. And I think I commented to, to Bucky, the other guy, I said, yeah, take away the special operations group, the snipers, and the guy who drives that truck and see which one they want back first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> he he's the necessary, most necessary dude on the on the bunch. So well, even like you're mentioning um, with your grandfather's story too. The you know you take a constable off the street here, and there's six seven support personnel that you have to call to get you know this form sent to you or call to get uh, approval for some other thing. So yeah, it takes a a team to basically make anything effective. Absolutely. So, yeah, and it's in any organization, uh, police, military, uh, industry, medical, you often see organizational charts and they'll have Colonel such and such at the top and then the majors and then the captains and mm-hmm. further down the sergeants and then God forbid all the million little privates on the, on the bottom. And I learned to flip that chart mm-hmm. and I put the, uh, the frontline officer, the, the, the private soldier, the, the, the frontline healthcare worker you put them at the top because the truth is all those people who are now below them are there to support. Yeah. You know, the only reason a colonel exists is ultimately for some 18 year old private with a pointy knife on the end of a short rifle mm-hmm. to be out there doing his work. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter how high speed, low drag we are. Ultimately it's the constable on patrol. It's, it's the, the soldier on the, on the wire that, that we're there to enable and support. So what you said you were, in the military, 1985, hmm. uh, you went to Wainwright for six months stint, yep. and then you were in jump school. Uh, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to be in Calgary, which is a fabulous place to be, uh, especially around the Olympics. Mm. 88 hit, I was on a biathlon team. We got front row access right in the pits with with a lot of the sports. So it was a great place uh, as a young man to be, and it was also expanding my, my knowledge and capabilities, working more with radios, getting into the stuff that, that I thought was the, the most exciting, which was the reconnaissance side. Yeah. Uh, less digging, more more sneaking around. Was uh, I know that the Olympics is often used as a political event. Mm-hmm. And back around the World War, uh, World War II, mm-hmm. you know, there was, Germany was uh, in full force at that time. And there's a lot of history around the Olympics and just all the countries that were competing in there. What was it like in the 80s? Do you remember anything from, you know, was there certain hostility toward Russian people? Um, That's a great question. Uh, in the in the Olympics previous, it was 88 and it was a winter Olympics, which is smaller and I don't think it's as, I'm going to guess, and I'm only guessing it's not as politically sensitive. Um, there had been earlier boycotts for those who, who weren't around. Uh, 
There was one big one where the Russians boycotted the Olympics, and there was another one where the Americans completely did, mm-hmm. uh, which was, which of course limited the level of competition. But in '88, it was everybody uh, uh, there. It was a great time. Uh, it just seemed to be a big, fabulous party to to 19 year old me. Uh, and famously, like the Jamaican bobsled team was there, and a guy named Eddie the Eagle. Now, both these mm. groups were were wildly popular in the press because they were the every person. Mm-hmm. These weren't really professional athletes. Uh, Eddie the Eagle was a British ski jumper, and Eddie the Eagle had never actually ski jumped, mm-hmm. but somehow managed to find his way onto the slopes in in uh, in Calgary and crashed and burned spectacularly. Uh, and the Jamaican bobsled team, um, they'd started in a sport uh, similar to push karting, Mm-hmm. Where they they push the, the carts, so it's very similar to the start of a what I imagine the start of a bobsled race is, and they came here and they they both Eddie the Eagle and the Jamaican bobsled team I think embodied the uh, the spirit of the the enthusiastic amateur and it, it brought every person into the Olympics. Well, and they had the they had movies made after absolutely. Them. So you have cool runnings, cool runnings, and, and I don't know what uh, Eddie's movie was called. Yeah, but there was one made. You yeah, know. it was maybe ten years ago it came out. Yeah, so. Um, so you go uh, do a bit in the Olympics, and then where do you go from there? Uh, as I mentioned, I learned to fall out of airplanes uh, up here in Edmonton. Uh, I think we were, we were jumping the week after the big, uh, uh, not hurricane, sorry, a tornado went through the trailer park in, the, in northeast Edmonton, mm. and uh, we, were, we were jumping in that kind of weather. Uh, very quickly after that, I think it was that summer, I was posted to Petawawa, Ontario, uh, to commando of the Canadian Airborne Regiment which is about 150 people, uh, all guys at the time, uh, who were selected from the PPCLI to go and, and do what we'd now call uh, Tier 2 direct action. Uh, raids, ambushes, airfield seizures, beachhead seizures, that kind of stuff. Is that in buildup for something, or is it just part of your normal training? No, the, the, uh, the posting means that, that it's like getting transferred from one division to another. Mm. Uh, so I've been living in Calgary, working in, in one unit, the the 1st Battalion of the Regular Infantry, PPCLI. And now I uh, was being transferred to the Canadian Airborne Regiment, which, again, we, we didn't have special operations. It was just us making it up as we go along. Uh, and uh, and as I said, it's it was mainly raids, ambushes, airfield seizures. Uh, the mandate for the Airborne Regiment varied at times, and it was never terribly clear. There were certain things, uh, mass casualty in the Arctic, for example, a an aircraft crashed, a jetliner crashes in the Arctic. Our search and rescue technicians are fabulous, but there ain't that many of them. So a follow-on force of 150 of us might join them and set up tents and keep people warm and, and evacuate them. That was one clear function. Um, in the context of the, the Cold War, we were a quick reaction group so that Canada could project force as part of a larger NATO uh, uh, coalition. We could be the Canadian element uh, dropping in uh, ahead of or behind uh, uh, other units in a traditional airborne role, uh, doing direct action, whether it was to seize a bridge or, or blow up an airfield or whatever strategically important uh, objective had to be taken. Where was, uh, at that time, where was Canada, I'll say, situated in amongst the NATO forces, like as for uh, capability and readiness? Like, you know, it's a pretty big group, but, you know, or we're not usually known as the the tip of the spear on a lot of things. In yeah, with with the exception of World War II, um, 
where I remind people that we stood amongst the world giants uh, on on Juno Beach. It was one of five beaches mm-hmm. uh, invading Europe, and two of them were the old power, the old superpower Britain. Two of them were the new superpower England, and the fifth one was Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, could have been anybody, but they chose Canada. So we were we were certainly standing on a on a world stage then. We also had the third largest navy in the world mm. at the end of World War II. Fast forward to the eighties, and eh, not so much. Um, we like to think we're a big deal mm-hmm. uh, nationally. I'm talking, talking. I think in the Canadian, and I'm projecting my own desires, maybe. But in the Canadian consciousness, we th- we think that we're militarily important, or that we're a world player, and just not. Uh, I was on one course with a couple American uh, special forces guys came up, and when they realized that there were more special operations guys in the U.S. than there were in the entire Canadian Army, Navy, and Air Force. Oh, wow. It was like, oh, man, we should invade you guys. They're <laughs> like, yeah, let's just wait. Two months later, it was mid-November, we were freezing ourselves in a, in a frozen water-filled hole, and he's like, yeah, no, we're not invading. <laughs> you know, so, we, we, you know, we, I think we overstate our importance, mm. and we get a lot of political truck and trade off of that. We earn our way to a seat at the big table because we're the Americans' cousins. And, mm-hmm. you know, we we have in the past put boots on the ground, and that matters. In the first Gulf War, uh, we didn't put boots on the ground. And there's a famous journalist giving a speech to us once, and he said he was in the airport in during the first Gulf War, and he was in Florida, and there was a T-shirt that said Coalition of the Willing, and it had all the flags of the nations that joined in. Now, we did send some medics, the whole field hospital, like a, a MASH unit, and they stayed in Saudi Arabia. They didn't go to the actual war. We sent a couple ships. They stayed away from the war. Hmm. We sent CF-18 fighter jets, which sadly we still have, <laughs> um, and they flew around Saudi Arabia because they were technically incapable of communicating with the other coalition partners. The technology. Yeah. And we lacked the political will. So they flew in circles over Saudi Arabia, and I think they fired an air-to-air missile at a fishing boat and missed. Um, True story. So we like to think we're doing doing a lot up to that point. Um, And that's not to to denigrate the the sacrifice or the willingness of the service of those who went. So I'll pull back from that. But at a political level, Mm -hmm. we like to make a show of it. Yeah. you can contrast that with the, the very real sacrifice of, of the former Yugoslavia throughout the 90s. Uh, other places like we went Somalia, uh, and then certainly uh, Afghanistan, and then present-day Iraq and a few other places we got people around the world. Well, it gets me thinking, uh, something we mentioned in the last time you are here was, and this kind of goes back to the training aspect, but... Um, one of the things you said is that you come out thinking that you're the finest fighting machine. Absolutely. And it got me, me thinking about, uh, you know, they say this in the police service too, not fighting machine, but just, you know, something to the effect of we're the best police service and everybody comes to us and everybody wants to be us and see how we do everything. Um, and I was thinking, is that really a good mentality to have? And considering I had just gone through depot and did six months Uh there, yeah. And then I came here about a year and a half-ish, two years later. 
and see the training here. And they're saying the exact same thing. It's like, there's a lot know. of doors that say the finest officers in the world walk through these doors. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you see yeah. with sports teams too. Yeah. And yeah. so I just was kind of thinking, Oh, I wonder if that's really applicable or if it's something good to say and, and what exactly they're trying to generate out of stating that. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's valuable and I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, and, uh, I just had the opportunity to watch one day of the, uh, Canadian or North American police dog finals down in Cameros a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Man, you guys kicked ass. Yeah. Like in that case in particular, I can stay with 100% confidence. You guys were head and shoulders above everybody else. Mm-hmm. Like cold, wasn't even a question. But I think every organization that places their people in risk and danger owes an obligation to send them out the door, not only with the best training, but also understanding that they have the best training. Mm-hmm. But the second part's predicated on the first. Yeah. And uh, looking back at my training as a, as a private soldier in 1985, 1986, I, I see now how woefully inadequate it was. And it boils down to the same problem that we had, why we have jet fighters with no radios that work, yeah. or why we're still flying the jet fighters that we shouldn't be anymore. Mm. Um, it, it's it's a political and a national willing. We, we A, have this delusion that we're, we're important on the military world stage, uh, that we're relevant. Uh, Mexico has a bigger army. Um, so we don't demand that we invest in it mm-hmm. to the point, frankly, of criminal negligence. Uh, in 1999, I was carrying a radio that no kidding was the same one you see in Vietnam war movies from the late fifties, early sixties. Really? That's when that radio was made. 1953, the Canadian army in Germany was, had some of the best equipment in the world and I was still using it in the mid eighties. So that persists. The CF 18s that fly around now, uh, were around in the Mm eighties when I was around in the eighties. So that was 40 years ago when I was around in the eighties, 40 years ago brings you to the end of world war two. So the P 51 D Mustang and the Vought Corsair, that's how old. So it's like flying in world war two aircraft in the eighties. That's where we're flying now. Yeah. And it's a lack of, national willingness to actually invest in our military. You know, famously, we say that we're going to do uh, 4% of our gross domestic product. We've domestic product invested in the military. I believe it's 4%, and we've never approached 2%. Mm-hmm. So at a national level, uh, at, at a local level, um, I had hoped that we're, we're equipping and training our officers to do the very, very necessary and very difficult work they do. And I'm, I live out in St. Albert, so I'm insulated. But um, I'm not 100% confident we are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think a lot of people don't realize that just because you're funding the military is not funding the war machine. It's a ton of humanitarian work. People need help all around the world. People that can't help themselves and or maybe don't have governments that'll help them. Uh, so sometimes you do need to go in and, and deal with stuff. Um, which we'll get to kind of when you talk about uh, Somalia yeah. and what that whole situation looks like. So um, yeah, I think people kind of lose sight of the, there's real wolves out there. There's real harm that can be done. And Evil's a thing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We definitely need to be prepared. Yeah. Um, so can you walk us through some of the rest of your training? So you're at Airborne sure. and then what happens so from the, there? So the first few weeks of uh, being the Airborne Regiment, um, there was a 
bit of delay for me. I kind of wandered around some empty buildings for a couple of weeks because the unit was actually on leave. They just got back from operations in Cyprus. So they were on holiday. Uh, but once they, they uh, were back, we kicked off with, with what was called the Airborne Indoctrination Course. And jump school teaches you how to fall out of an airplane. Uh, airborne Indoctrination teaches you what to do once you hit the ground. Mm. So you roll up your parachute. Uh, that's no big deal, but what do you do next? So how you gather together in groups, when do you have enough, when do you decide you have enough people? Um, it teaches you how to do some basic leadership stuff because you may suddenly be the guy in charge mm -hmm. because the guy in charge is in pieces out there or his aircraft didn't make it. Um, and then all the things that we do to make sure that we're physically, tactically and, and mentally ready to go out and do things like, um, climb out of subs and swim ashore and, and get a beach ready uh, to do a, a raid or an ambush out of helicopters. Like, how do you slide down? You know, it's not just the nature of sliding down a rope, but like, who goes first? What do you do when you're on the ground? Who moves next? All these technical, tactical details. And it also, the Airborne Indoctrination Course was designed to inculcate the, uh, the culture and the mental, excuse me, the mental preparedness uh, that you need to do those kind of things. So who's teaching these courses? Is it ideally hardened guys that have been through? Yeah, the reality battles? it's guys have been there a whole 12 to 14 months longer than you have. Yeah. 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 Uh, unfortunately, the airborne went through many, many changes over the years. And when I was there, it was uh, it was a three-year deal. So the unit you actually belong to, for me, the PPCLI, they would basically loan you to the airborne for mm -hmm. three years. And with the understanding you would come back. I managed to hide out there for about seven and a half um, until it was discovered. But, uh, uh, yeah, the, the training was, was given, was run, the airborne indoctrination course was run by older soldiers, typically with guys with two to three years experience. Uh, and it, it just prepared guys to do their job in a rifle commando, just mm -hmm. being a, a sled dog with a rifle or a light machine gun and running around the woods. So it's very interesting hearing that because, uh, you know, most of our media were exposed to American stuff. And then when you listen to the American guys who train around the same time and then they're preparing for the Gulf War, mm -hmm. uh, they're getting guys in there that are be maybe a little long in tooth, but uh, guys from the Vietnam era. So they've got some guys in there that have decades of experience and uh, mm -hmm. a real battle-hardened, battle-tested. And then to hear the, uh, the opposite side of things with the Canadian military... Well, it, it's true. Both militaries' experience is, uh, is effervescent. It evaporates almost immediately. Uh, I was just a couple few weeks ago, I was down in, uh, I was getting ready to go down to Dunder and Saskatchewan to work with the basic sniper course. And uh, the unit master sniper uh, was telling me that, like, yeah, we've got like zero snipers with Afghanistan experience. And like, so I count, start counting on my fingers and toes how many years it's been. And like, damn, it, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't that long ago, but. There are literally no snipers. Oh, sorry. There was one dude, one dude from the 1st Battalion who was a sniper, and uh, he's now the unit master sniper. He was a basic sniper in, in Afghanistan near the end. Oh. So it goes like that. Yeah. So. And the last know, major conflict that we were involved in would have been Korea? Sure. <laughs> to um, a degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I get you. Like, Afghanistan, uh, in, in frame of reference, yeah, Korea would have been definitely... Yeah, sorry, before uh, yeah, Afghanistan, yeah, sorry. I'm talking. Yeah, uh, when I was in 1985, absolutely. Mm -hmm. One of my very senior warrant officers uh, was trained by guys who had been to Korea. 
Yeah. Yeah. So when he got in 25 years before me, his senior guys were, were combat veterans from, from, uh, from Korea. Hmm. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, we, we have guys in current conflict zones, so yeah, it's still a thing. So where, where do you go from? We left off at the indoctrination school. Yeah. So, uh, learned to follow the airplanes and what to do when it hit the ground. And, uh, it was an odd time because we spent a lot of time training and that's, that's kind of the contrast between what I think military and police do. One of, one of the many contrasts we may face highly intense, uh, conflict for a very, very short period of time. You know, you know I hope nobody's launching rockets and artillery at you guys yet, but, um, Excuse me, where the, the police are exposed to what some people may think is lower level conflict. It does not have to be World War III for somebody to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two or three times that, that I came closest to dying were very minor things. Uh, and the, the stress and the, the danger that, that our officers are exposed to for years and years and years, mm-hmm. it, it's just, it blows my mind that the men and women can still do that year after year and year. And it's just, it's unbelievable. Just yeah. It shows you what the body can take. Yeah. <laughs> well, we prepare our minds to, to take our bodies to places that they, they don't think they can go. But, uh, the, the continual exposure to low level, relatively low level, let's be honest, high level for most of us mere mortals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, it's remarkable that, that human performance can continue that well that long. Yeah. Um, for me in, in two commando, there was a lot of, because of the political will of the time, we weren't involved in a lot of conflicts. We chose not to be, for example, the airborne should have gone to the first Gulf war. That's literally what we're for quick reaction, kick us out the door within 12 to 24 to 72 hours. Uh, we could have been right there side by side with the, the guys, uh, uh, in, in Iraq. Uh, but we chose not to. And as I alluded to with the, the guy with the t-shirt, um, where I was going to finish that up is, uh, Gwen Dyer was his name. And Gwen was explaining that on that t-shirt was all the flags of the, the coalition of the willing. We weren't on the t-shirt. Yeah. Cause we didn't have boots on the ground. Mm. We had, yeah, we had jets flying around circles in Saudi Arabia. We had, uh, some ships sailing around the ocean nearby. We, you know, enforcing a blockade legitimately. Uh, we had a surgical hospital in the sands of Saudi Arabia. Um, but we didn't put boots on the ground. We didn't put people at risk. So we didn't make the t-shirt. So we didn't get the political capital mm-hmm. that being involved with those things. And I think Canada learned from that politically and every, pretty much every conflict after that, we had boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, it's important that, you know, it, we continue to participate, even if it's a token force, which really it is. Well, let's be honest. The last thing the 82nd Airborne needs is, you know, 150 more guys that can fall out of airplanes and blow stuff up. Yeah. They, they've got those. Yeah. Uh, but it, it matters that they're Canadians. Similarly, we have troops in uh, in Latvia right now. Do we really need another half battalion of, of mechanized infantry? Eh, probably not. But it matters that they're serving under a Canadian flag. It is a deterrence uh, for, for foreign aggression. Mm-hmm. So it matters. And we've got to continue to do that. But at the, the time I was in, uh, there was a lot of training and not a lot of action. You know, it was, it was discouraging. Um, and then we, we were cleaning our weapons one one night, one morning, actually, after running around the woods all night. And somebody said, it doesn't really matter because we're never going anywhere. 
four and a half months later, we were in the desert. Really? So it does matter. And uh, I think a lot of the young soldiers that are here in Edmonton, perhaps other places, maybe starting to get that feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, they see the, the senior people with, with Iraq medals from, from other places, but there's not a lot going on today. Yeah. And uh, absolutely, as a society, we have to support them. And as individuals, they have to decide that this could be happening tomorrow. Yeah. And the students I just spoke to a few weeks ago, like, I'm like, dudes, like, this is not the end point. Like, you know, you finish a course. Like, do you ever finish a course? And it's like, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the beginning, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, you just do the training and then, you know, the real experience is quite different sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah, so. 100% believe that. But the difference between you doing scenario-based training and then 12 hours later, the next time you go through a door, there may be somebody on the other side who is bound determined to kill you. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it's not such a game. Mm-hmm. And as a military, I saw that, I called it the Cyprus mentality. Cyprus, with the exception of 1974, when there was a shooting war, Cyprus was a pretty Gucci tour. You went there, you stood in a bunker, you wore a blue helmet, you went to the beach, got drunk, you know, you bought a lot of gold, you came home with a medal six months later. Pretty Gucci tour. Yeah. You know, not, not easy, but interesting, but like pretty sweet. You know, for example, now when our soldiers return from overseas, they actually stop in Cyprus and have a little vacation before they, they yeah. unwind before they come home, right? So, but it was the Cyprus mentality. A couple of times we went places and, and uh, particularly Kosovo in 1999, and we, honestly thought we were going to get into a hard shooting war with uh, what we call a near peer or in the reality, slightly better equipped force, uh, the Serbian armored columns. Uh, we really thought we'd be, we'd be going missile to missile and like toe to toe. Um, and when we didn't, I saw the whole organization go <sighs> mm-hmm. and revert back to Cyprus mentality. Problem was, like I said with earlier is it, doesn't have to be World War III for somebody to die. And that was one of the times I came closest to, to being killed was in a relatively nothing conflict. So, and it can happen. Uh, what is, so if you're in training, uh, what's your first deployment after that? Because you're saying you're in the desert. Yeah, four and a half months, months after yeah. that conversation. Yeah, so I spent about three and a half years in uh, two commando, falling out of airplanes, running around woods, running around deserts, running around... Uh, North Carolina forests, uh, doing lots of good, fun, cool guy stuff. Um, in the, in the airborne, it's a lot more individual. So a team of four guys would be trained to go and take a bunch of rockets and literally go hunt a tank. So we had tank hunting ranges where we would, uh, have a simulated tank out, tank all out there. And we'd have to figure out how to sneak up on and blow it up without getting blown up ourselves. Uh, we were messing around with basic explosives. You know, we were shooting machine guns at night. We're, you know, patrolling in over a day and a half. Uh, well, we did four days up into the Ghost River, into the headwaters of the Ghost River. Where a high, is that? A high in, uh, down near Calgary. Okay. Yeah, we did, I think it was a four and a half or five day approach. And then we went into a Cirque Lake at the headwaters of the Ghost River, did an attack. Um, kind of high altitude. I think it's the highest I've ever been. Uh, we got up over, we got up, we were up over 10,000 feet. And then did a, an extraction up and over a top of a mountain down the down the rivers and then into into Canmore. Mm-hmm. So that was the kind of training we were expected to go anywhere and do anything, be able to do it in all weather, all trains. So we did that for about three and a half years. 
And the Airborne Regiment had been tapped to go to some place called Western Sahara, which is, if you think of, think of Africa, it's kind of at the 11 o'clock. Mm-hmm. It's just west of the Mediterranean. Uh, it may or may not be owned by Morocco, depending on who you talk to, and that's why they were going to send us there. Uh, that mission, uh, the, uh, it was a UN mission, so it had to have all the parties involved accepting it. And Morocco played along until it was time for us to go. And then they're like, yeah, no, oh, we, really? we don't want you coming. So uh, we had trained to, to go to Morocco, to Western Sahara, and uh, do a blue helmet flag-waving presence operation. And at about the same time, a uh, massive a wave of starvation uh, and warfare struck uh, the Horn of Africa on the other side of the continent. And... We had a, a news media uh, bombarding people with, with images of starving people. It was horrible. Um, but it was the first time this level of horrible had really been seen by mass audiences in, in North America. So off we went. The Americans, uh, originally there was a UN mission to go there. And those troops were on the ground, but they were under what I'll call UN rules. Um, the first group that was there, Pakistan, Morocco, a few other countries... They wore blue uniform, you know, blue hats, and and were constrained by very, very, very limited rules of engagement. Like even down to the amount of ammunition they were they were allowed to carry. The U.S. decided that wasn't enough. Uh, we we had learned from the coalition of the willing mm-hmm. that we didn't make the T-shirt, so Canada wanted to be boots on the ground this time. And after uh, being shuffled around in the kind of the organization a couple times, uh, we landed. I think our first guys went in just before Christmas of 1992. And by New Year's Day, we were all there. And we landed in a city called Bella Twain, which is excuse me, right up against the uh, Somali-Ethiopian border. And I'll stick a little asterisk by that concept of border for a minute. Uh, we got in there, landed an aircraft, lived out of our rucksacks uh, with little to no support, lived uh, dug holes in the ground strung a few tarps up, and that's where we lived for two or three weeks, and that's literally all the equipment we had. Hmm. We sent patrols into the city, dominated the area. Uh, there were a couple brief firefights that uh, didn't go well for the, for the bad guys, uh, so they stopped having firefights with us. So we dominated the city pretty quickly. At this point, are you involved in the sniping program, or you're actually uh, down there, like right at the front line? Yeah, no, but by this point... Um, when the Western Sahara thing happened, we reorganized a couple times. And when it didn't happen, we reorganized again. And I got the opportunity to go to uh, an organization called the Pathfinder Platoon, which mm-hmm. is about okay. 35 guys um, within the Airborne Regiment. But it's made up of guys from across the regiment and uh, across the Special Service Force. Uh, so I was actually a junior guy, super junior guy, um, uh, in the Pathfinder Platoon when we deployed to Somalia. And I was the only, uh, there were other guys with sniper rifles. Uh, I think Frank may have been the only other qualified guy who had a rifle, but that wasn't really his job. He was a, a platoon warrant, I think. But I was a sniper. I was the only sniper I know of, a uh, full-time sniper in Somalia working. And I was working with the Pathfinder platoon out of the headquarters. So that was my job. Okay. Uh, the finest of 1970s bolt-action rifles. Uh, <sighs> what yeah. kind of equipment were you using? Um, pretty rudimentary. Uh, my first sniper rifle when I went through training uh, and I did that in 1989, so short, the year after I went to the, the Olympics. Uh, got to the Airborne, did the Airborne indoctrination, 
pretty much right away got onto a sniper course. And sniping at the time was very, very, very small. I think by the time we graduated, eight of us, there were 16 qualified snipers in the Army. It was almost dead. Wow. So fast forward a, a couple of years, we end up uh, in Somalia. I'm the only full-time sniper in the platoon. And uh, I'm supporting raids. Uh, and it wasn't particularly well-organized. Uh, there were times that we set up on this one house. I got up in a little tower to, to watch our guys move in and cover the movement in. And, uh, there was a platoon from one commander, one of the other organizations coming out of the same place. We were, we were, we were having so much fun. I think that we just ran out of bad guys to chase. Uh, but that's how we dominated the ground, right? We dominated the city and the bad guys decided it wasn't a good deal to play. And is your job, um, I mean, most people are only going to have the movies as a frame of reference, mm-hmm. but, uh, are you set up, you know? quite a distance away and you know you're trying to see as much as you can of the, the field and kind of protect your guys well sure it's it's uh that, that that's a good basic concept and certainly in the cold war that's kind of the way we train guys in ghillie suits off crawling around by themselves we did do that at times uh, a lot of these direct action raids um i might be like a couple hundred meters one two hundred meters away mm-hmm. uh giving immediate direct intimate support we weren't the blueberries limited rules of engagement we had limited rules of engagement but the cool thing was if there were bad guys we went after them we weren't constrained by having to wait to be shot at first or we just hunt them down and, and deal with them there and that like this one raid you know i set up i was in this tiny little tower just balled ass up there like like a flag on a pole you know like it was certainly wasn't concealed in any way shape or form really uh but it's it's you know it's direct support so they know I'm there anyways, because there's there's our guys banging on the door by then anyhow. Mm-hmm. So you asked about the equipment. Um, we had gone through a bit of a refit of the rifle, but the rifle I had basically was not that different than your typical 308 hunting rifle. Had a slightly better scope, um, wooden stock, and uh, that was about it. Really? You know, I didn't we didn't even have a spare pistol for me to carry around. So, oh, you didn't no backup system. No, I had a I had an untrained uh, partner, um, Andre, who stood at the base of the tower and kind of protected me. But a lot of the, a lot of the time, I ended up working alone uh, up in the desert, uh, up against the border. Um, later on in Mogadishu, I would have one or two partners at different times, but generally, I ended up working alone there, which is not the great way to do things. This sounds but, more more like what you see in the World War II movies, where you get the lone guy in a bell tower yeah as opposed to now everybody's got a spotter with them yeah that's what i felt like we didn't we didn't have um we we did we were supposed to have a spotter but again i said there was a real shortage of trained guys Mm -hmm. so i'd use other guys at times um to sometimes really great effect it's the same see in the movie sometimes you'll see like a marine stuck in behind the the sniper and he's doing like rear security uh so it's kind of more like that um uh, as always we happily made it up as we went along you know for again lack of training lack of funding lack of equipment but we still went we still did it so while you're in somalia can you talk about some of the uh deployments that you went on there sure missions um and maybe some of the people that were involved some of the guys you remember and that's uh, i mean we hear this in all professions it's really about the people and uh, it's doubly true in this in, in the infantry and in the airborne in particular uh, we don't have big tanks. Mm-hmm. You know, when the tank turns left, the guy loading the gun turns left. He doesn't have a choice. You know, when the when the ship turns to starboard, you're going with the ship. But with the infantry and with the airborne in particular, we say you volunteered with every step. 
because there was literally no one capable of making you do things. Uh, it, was, it was a choice of every day. So the people I served with, uh, you know, it's, it's so easy to say that we stand on the shoulders of giants, but damn, it's true. Like just fabulous people, um, particularly in, 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 all, in all areas. But the part that stands out to me was, was the Pathfinder Platoon was in two commando and then lots of guys in, in the regular battalions too. Um, by the time I went to Pathfinder Platoon, I'd been in the Airborne like a full three and a half years, longer than normal. And, like I'm not being a dick, but I, was, I knew what I was doing. Like, I was one of the better soldiers because I had more time and I was, mm-hmm. I was pretty interested in it. When I got to Pathfinder Platoon, I was solidly in the bottom half. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were some studs. Like there were some amazing people. Um, and I, le- I learned from all of them. And it was, it was a hyper-motivated, highly idealistic um, competitive, but supporting environment as well. By the time, uh, you know, by the time we'd, we'd gone to Smalley and then gone through a bunch of training together, you felt like, when we go back to, you know, you feel like there's nothing you can't do. Mm-hmm. Well, this is based on, like I said, the first thing is by actual good, solid training and experience. You know, and I'm still still brothers with, with many of the guys from that platoon. Uh, some live just minutes or a couple hours from me. We're still in contact. I'm linking up with one of them later today. Okay. You know, so it's it's that quality of people. Um, it's the absolute trust in the worst possible situations. Uh, we were under, later on we were in Mogadishu and we were under, uh, under some eh, moderate contact. Uh, they were trying to shoot their way into the front gate and a guy named Rock LeClaire, he was the platoon warrant for the one commando platoon that was working security and Brock gave an order for somebody to give him cover and didn't even look sideways. He just started running because he knew those guys would support him and uh, machine gun fired, machine gun fired. Our guys kept going and rock kept running with the extra ammo that the other guys needed down the, down the line. Mm-hmm. And he didn't even look sideways. He didn't hesitate. He didn't question. He just knew that once he said, Hey, I need this, it was going to happen come hell or high water mm-hmm. and it did um yeah another time we we're doing uh, we we're doing in the pathfinder too we did the the free fall parachuting not the not the meat bombs under the round parachutes but the but the uh the the higher altitude stuff where you're actually flying the shoot and stuff and and that takes some practice and and regularly but once a year we we do a jump camp and like everything else in the military, like anything else safety related, there's rituals. I mean, when you get ready for a shift, there's certain rituals you do, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Like how long does it take you to get ready for, for a shift? Uh, it'll take me maybe like five, 10 minutes, but you kind of do things in the same order. So I know I make, make sure I got everything that I'm supposed mm-hmm. to go out the door with. Yeah. Right. So that's your, your process of doing mm-hmm. things, call it a ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And then you have your, there's actually a lot of guys who have weird little quirks. Sure. Right. And they're going to tap this or touch that or do something. And um, so whatever kind of makes you feel like you're ready. Sure. So. Yeah. It's a psychological as well as a physical preparation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's the same whenever there's risk involved, um, you know, pilots have a pre-flight check. Mm-hmm. And when you're falling into one of their airplanes, uh, there's a, it's about an eight hour process that you go through with multiple safety checks. 
and we'd gone through this. Uh, we, it was about two hours for the, for this one because it was it was not technical jumping. Um, we'd gone through about a two hour process, and because we didn't have a lot of equipment on us, the aircraft, which had a ramp at the back, didn't touch the ground because they don't want literally don't want to scratch their paint on the runway, right? Mm-hmm. When we're carrying heavy equipment, they have to put it right down, and we have like a step and stuff. But like today, they they weren't quite touching. So as I stepped up onto this ramp, um, I arched my back to get up there, and the one pin that holds both your parachutes in popped. <laughs> and a guy named Mike Denis, who was our platoon warrant at the time, uh, was right behind me with another guy named Ralph Plant and uh, Renee Plant. Um, uh, Mike took his hand, put it right over my pin right away. And he said, wait. Now, Mike was also a world-class free faller. Like, literally would compete at the international level. So was, so was Renee or Ralph. And uh, Mike put it back in, checked it, and he said, you're good to go. Later on, I'm like, wait a minute. By the rules, I'm supposed to go and, like, ditch that chute. And it's supposed to be flown, like, back to Edmonton to be checked across the other side of the country. And there's... You know, there's log books to be filled out, and you know, why did this happen? Blah blah blah. But at the time, I didn't even hesitate because mm-hmm. guys like Mike and and Ralph absolutely trust each other 110. percent There's just there was just no question ever entered my mind. Yeah, and it was the same in in operations. If if somebody said, "Hey, we need you at this place covering that building at this time," it'd be like, "Yeah, that's just just going to happen." Uh, it doesn't matter what's in the way or what happens, and there's always something that happens. Mm-hmm. You know that. Uh, you just had to be there. You mm-hmm. just absolutely had to be there at that time doing that thing because everyone else depended on you. I, yeah, and that's one thing that I think is missing from, I'll say, from policing nowadays. Yeah, is that uh, I want to call it blind trust, but some of the stuff you see out there and and the things that happen make you go, boy, I don't know where the training's gone or how these, that person got in here or what's going on. But, um, I think it, I think a lot of it comes out of just saying that everybody's the same. Everybody is, uh, uh, can just do every job. It's like, nope. Nope. Some people are better for some things than others. I am colorblind so. as a stick, man. You do not want me flying your airplane. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just a reality. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everybody's got their strengths and weaknesses. And we should be, be used. But the only way to find out who's who in the zoo is extensive training followed by actual operations. Yeah. You know, you talked about earlier about like, oh, it was all the old tough and battle-wising guys. Yeah, they've, they've got something. They've got a credibility that, you know, uh, we talked earlier off off mic about uh, Jason Mitchell. Mm. That dude's got a hundred percent credibility in my mind because he's been there, done that thing, and uh, that's only earned by actual good hard training. That's difficult and demanding, and being willing to fail mm. and struggle, fail again, and then learn from it. Um, and that's how you earn the credibility to trust each other. It can't be, you know, it can be nice slogans, you know. These, through the, these doors, yeah. walk the finest police officer. Absolutely, we got to believe that. Yeah, but it only gets backed up if we do the work. Well, so uh, one of the things you talked about in the previous uh, episode was when you were over in Somalia and there was the Battle of the Black Sea. Yeah. Uh, were you involved in that at all? No, no. And I lived with about ten years of survivors' guilt because of that. 
Uh, I left on June 25th, uh, 1993, and the Battle of the Black Sea, or, or was memorialized by the, the, immortalized by the movie Black Hawk Down, mm. that happened on October 3rd and 4th, so several months later. Regardless, um, it, ha- it happened um, in a part of the city that at the time I thought I'd have been able to cover, and I had no doubt in my mind that had that happen within my arcs, I'd have been a part of it. Like, I would have done everything I could to support those guys because they literally were our sister battalion. Like, we were bonded to the 2nd Ranger Battalion. So, were you, or was Canada, I should say not you, but was Canada involved in that at all? No, I was... I say, uh, they weren't in the movie. Nope, not at all. Well, that's not unusual. <laughs> yeah. um, well, that's why I asked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, we we uh, we committed, we, we, we didn't commit to a, a particular set. Like, when we went, there was no fixed deadline. Um, a lot of missions around that time, it evolved into kind of a six-month tour. That was a standard tour for Canadians. But at the time, it was completely over, open-ended. And depending on who you were and when you came and went, it was anywhere from probably about four and a half months to I was six months to the day that I left that I came back. I uh, left December 26, came back uh, June 26. Hmm. And uh, yeah, we uh, things were just starting to ramp up. And in retrospect now, like I could... I had a sniper position on the uh, the new the headquarters building of the new port right in, in downtown Mogadishu. And we'd see Blackhawks, other helicopters fly over. And you would see RPG-7s, which are not meant to shoot down helicopters. But what they were trying was they'd start kind of an outer ring and you'd see five or six of them come up from like 800 meters away. And then you'd see five or six come up from like 400 meters away. And they were zoning in, mm-hmm. trying to get these helicopters. And uh, that was training provided to the local Somalis by by Al-Qaeda. That was actually Bin Laden's people. It's almost like they're they're using RPGs in a, a mortar sense. Yeah, kind of, that's what happened in, in the movie Black Hawk Down in the Battle of Black Sea Market. Black Sea Market was a place where a lot of, lot of, lot of stuff got sold, <laughs> uh, famously a lot of weapons. Um, and that's just, they were going after a bad guy. And uh, a couple bad things in a row happened. And they wound up getting some of their helicopters getting hit by by RPGs, by rocket propelled grenades, which again are made for blown up trucks and small tanks, not mm-hmm. not shooting down the helicopters. But it was certainly a dedicated and coordinated effort uh, for them to do so. So, what's kind of a, one of your most, I'd say, memorable experiences for whatever reason from your deployment to Somalia? Man. Um, But I'll talk about here probably probably my favorite one, um, and it's a picture on my kitchen wall now. And we were doing security. Part of we were there to end a war, um, but we did that pretty quick, probably in about the first four days. Uh, and there were there were light contacts pretty much the whole time afterwards, but not not real hard fighting until we got down into Mogadishu near the end. But um, one of my favorite memories is one that's in a photograph. We were doing security to relocate a bunch of refugees out of a refugee camp by the city. Uh, one of the, uh, the aid organizations was relocating them out in a stretch of desert by a river and establishing them as a new village. So they had, some, you know, they had lots of supplies. Hell, they had a whole new tarp. Um, they had a tarp. They had six months of, of grains. They had seeds. And our engineers had drilled a, a water pump. And got a pump established so they'd be able to water the crops. So these people are literally war refugees. And as I pointed my 
little shitty 35 millimeter disposable camera at this woman. I pointed a camera at her because despite being a refugee in a very desperately poor and famished nation, she was dressed in this beautiful, beautiful garb and she was clean and so was her child. And the moment I pointed my camera, the, the look of pride in her face was, was striking. And as I looked at her more, I realized she was by herself. So she didn't have a husband. Mm. Um, and I spoke a little bit, little language. So I spoke to her and she did not have a husband anymore. Um, she was heavily facially scarred from uh, an earlier injury. And she had a daughter. Mm. She had nothing. Because in, in the culture of the time, um, the parents would go and live with the son. Uh, and if you had a daughter, she'd be supporting and caring for her husband's parents. So that kid was a pension plan, but that kid was a girl. Mm-hmm. And that culture was no pension plan. So this woman was leaving a refugee camp to go to build a grass hut in the desert and hopefully raise a crop with her literal possessions on her back and no future, mm-hmm. really. And she was still proud and happy the moment I pointed the camera at her. So kind of realized I got nothing to complain about. Yeah. yeah. Puts things into perspective real quick. Yep. That's why she's on the kitchen wall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's a pretty yeah. good story. Yeah. It, it, pretty remarkable moment. Um, there, you know, there's lots of stupid stuff of, uh, you know, running around the desert doing cool guy stuff and, flying in helicopters and and it was quiet enough for a while we even did an exchange with the italian the italian commando group next to it next door to us uh was also obviously airborne so we fell out of each other's airplanes for lack of something better to do and um there's a certain degree of what we call military tourism you get bored so you find a reason to go over to their camp and eat their rations and <laughs> trade for their kit which is definitely better than ours because it's different mm-hmm. um you know and there's there's uh Many, many good times. And I mean, it, it was, was hard living. Like it was, this was not Afghanistan, which is hard enough and, and brutal war. We literally had nothing. Like I, we actually took pictures when we got a floor. We had enough plywood that they came and made us a floor. And like, we literally had, a, I think eventually we got our kit boxes. So we had like basically two small suitcases and a rucksack. And that's what you lived with for six months. So how come we're sending soldiers over, but they're just so woefully prepared? Like, how do we not have any bases or anything? Well, we we don't have the bases. We don't have the ability to project force very well. We have a tiny mountain war now. But at the time, it's just that we were so remote. Like, we were good. And I can't remember the proper number. Somebody will correct me. But I'd say we were at least five to 700 kilometers from the city. Mm. Up the one semi-paved highway in the in the country you know we're literally pretty much the ends of the earth remember i stuck an asterisk in the border idea yeah um we arbitrarily somewhere in the western world drew a line on the map and decided that's the difference between ethiopia and somalia which is news to them Mm. um they don't recognize the border in any way uh they see it it's very clan based or was at the time um the people over there on that side of our border were just as much their cousins as the ones five miles the other way. 
Yeah. So it was it was a hard border for us most of the time, but uh, uh, it was just part of their normal existence. They didn't really care whether that border was there or not. How did you find, uh, so when you're operating over there, how do you find the, say, the leadership and keeping people motivated? Because imagine you're seeing lots of, uh, just lots of destruction and gore and everything in between. Um, So how do they keep you going? I was really lucky because I thought, thought we had good, uh, uh, we had conflict within our chain of command. Uh, there were certain levels that didn't get along with other levels, like in, in my immediate chain of command. But regardless, I, I felt we had a pretty good chain of command immediately. At the at the regimental level, I'll be blunt, it was it was it was a shit show. Um, it was a perfect storm of a, a chain of leaders of weak leaders being in in the wrong places at just the wrong time, and it was just an accident of history and a bunch of other factors of why those people were there at that time. But there was a lack of leadership, and it wasn't specific to the Airborne Regiment. The problem that the Airborne Regiment had were exactly the same as, as every other unit in the Army at the time. Um, you know, I've, I'm a trench-level soldier, so I can only guess at things like rampant careerism, nepotism, mm. regimental nepotism. Um, I know for a fact that the commander we took to Somalia was only placed into that job because he belonged to a certain unit, a certain regimental family. And the people that were choosing the next commander, even though it was the turn of a PPCLI commander to go and take command of the Airborne Regiment, they thought it would look too bad. It would look inappropriate if they chose another Patricia officer to go into that slot, even though it was that, that officer, you know, that regiment's mm-hmm. turn. So there are a lot of factors that ended up in, in weak, uh, weak leadership. And it is difficult when loyal people finally lose faith in their organization. And for me, it was a couple years after Somalia when I realized that um, the, the commanders at the highest level in the Canadian forces uh, were openly not taking responsibility. And uh, subsequent to the mission of Somalia, uh, the government found it easier to have a commission of inquiry than answer questions in Parliament. So they shuffled it off to a commission of inquiry and... The Commission of Inquiry talked to all the soldiers from guys like me on the ground all the way up to the Chief of Defense Staff. And the Chief of Defense Staff, uh, at the time of the Somali Inquiry, had been second or third in command of the military at the time and was the one that was responsible for all overseas operations, including Somalia. Hmm. On the stand and on the record, he said, well, they reported through me but not to me. He abdicated all responsibility. Just mm. a complete and utter abandonment of it. And that hurt. Because, you know, we, I talked about, you know, Mike putting his hand on the back of my chute, and I just trusted him to do his job. Mm-hmm. This guy was letting me down. It's almost reminiscent of in parts or portions of the Nova Scotia inquiry with the Mounties right now and some of the stuff you hear coming out of there on record. Man. So yeah. interesting. It's your podcast, so I'll be gentle, but... Damn. Yeah, it's it's the same things 20 years later, 30 years later. Mm-hmm. It's the same problems. The same. Well, it's interesting. The small inquiry was suddenly cut, covered by, uh, it, it was suddenly cut short mm-hmm. because we'd taken too long and spent too much money. They ran out of soldiers to talk to, and they're starting to talk to people like Bob Fowler 
who's the associate minister of defense, and then they were going to talk to the minister of defense, and then they were going to talk to the deputy prime minister. All of a sudden, we couldn't have an inquiry anymore. Hmm. That's a reality. And there's not a lot of, uh, I've never seen any real books on the Somalian uh, deployment, except there's, uh, was it Romeo Dallaire? Am I saying that right? Uh, Romeo yeah. Dallaire was Rwanda. Rwanda, that's yeah, right. He was, he, was, he was after, and we sent a whole bunch of, of uh, airborne soldiers there uh, to protect, a, we sent a hospital again, because, hmm. you know, boots on the ground, baby. Um, but there's but nothing sent, on Somalia, though, hey? Uh, there is. Uh, Rudy Amaral wrote a book called Eat Your Weakest Man, uh, mm-hmm. which was kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek motto. Um, uh, Rudy wrote a book about his experiences that encompassed, uh, I think he was the quartermaster for two commando at the time. Okay. So he was immediately present to some of the, the events, good and bad, that happened there. Um, for those that don't know, uh, there was flat out a murder in Somalia by one of our, two of our soldiers. Uh, uh, on a thief who had broken into our compound. Um, and that's where the famous Somalia um, crisis or Somalia, uh, all the problems came from. Uh, we had a weak chain of command that allowed a racist, um, narcissistic psychopath um, to torture a local guy to death. Mm. And while there probably was some cover-up on the desert level, there's definitely some cover-up happened on the national level. The uh, prime minister was Kim Campbell. She had been appointed into the position when the former prime minister left. So she had just ascended from deputy into prime minister, and she was trying to be prime minister. She mm-hmm. was heading into an election. So my guess, again, this is only a trench-level soldier, but my guess is there was, there was an attempt to cover up at about the Bob Fowler level that uh, uh, was trying to protect her from any possible problems Mm -hmm. and as a result then there was more and more and more cover-up and damn there was some cover-up well this is where we get into talking about we've talked about this before but the leadership versus management yeah and just because you're in a a higher rank doesn't mean necessarily somebody that people would want to follow absolutely um how were the did you get a lot of interaction with the local community the people there that you're there Um, a limited amount. Um, well, it sounds all cool to be the platoon sniper. Uh, that means I was held in reserve a lot. So mm-hmm. the regu- our, our, our reconnaissance deaths would be roaring around the desert doing cool guy stuff, and I'd be stuck back in camp. So uh, I made contact with a local uh, young man who came to the gate looking for work, and, and I put him to work teaching me Smalley for a little while, paid him a bit out of my pocket, and eventually we hired him as, a, uh, uh, as, a, as an interpreter. Um, so I came to know a little bit of the culture through them. And, uh, um, you know, I can't run too fat to fly, but I can learn languages. So yeah. I, was, I, was, I was fluent within about, well, not fluent, but it was conversational within about two months. Hmm. And, uh, um, or I was, to- let's, let's put it another way, I was tolerated uh, within about two months by the locals. So I, was, I had a little bit more insight. And the, the cool part is, is I would, every day I would question this young fellow who worked for us about what was going on and, and shifting allegiances and, and everything was going on. And uh, I learned that the toughest thing on earth is an African woman. Mm. Like, unbelievably cheerful, unbelievably strong, unbelievably resilient. Um, and that's where I saw leadership, was mm. in the families by the, by the women. Um, saw bad leadership or management by, uh, by, by some of the warlords. Um, 
but yeah, it was for a young farm boy, his first time overseas, it was, it was enlightening to see the women of another culture just absolutely blow me away with their, with their strength. Mm-hmm. Um, on our side, uh, we had some amazing leaders and some horribly poor managers. Um, leadership is, you know, not just being willing, but actual immediate. I think the first rule is, is immediate physical presence. You've got to be out there. Mm-hmm. And I know you've, you've got white shirts, man. They're out there doing, doing foot chases. Mm-hmm. I've heard the, the stories. And that's the kind of guy we needed in charge of us. Well, there's a difference between leading from the front and leading from the back. You're managing from the rear. If mm-hmm. you're not immediately physical present. Mm-hmm. After, after uh, Somalia, we, uh, we got one of the finest, scariest leaders I've ever met in my life, uh, Colonel, uh, Colonel Kenward. And his son's on your force, so I'll embarrass him now. But um, uh, his dad was the leader who you'd hear stories about, like in movies. Like, you'd go to do something, this guy had already done it. Mm-hmm. You know, we, uh, there was an annual, just a run and shoot competition. And uh, Colonel Kemmer took over the regiment in about 94. And uh, we were tapped to do this team of run and shoot. So we show up at the start line, and the unit that was organizing it messed it up. They started the, the start line about two and a half kilometers further than it should have been. So the 3K run was now five and a half, oh. and we needed to meet the same timings. So we took off, and I could run at the time, and we were running like the wind. Colonel Cameron caught up to us, and then he stopped to talk to the brigade commander. Then he caught up to us again. <sighs> And was there when we crossed the finish line. Wow. You know, he's the kind of guy we went down to, to Georgia and, you know, we're up to our chest in a swamp and we get to where we're going and he's standing there waiting for us. That's leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy who was out there, not just for the fun jumps, but the real heavy equipment ones at two in the morning that no one else knew he was there. No one else cared he was there, but he was there doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's immediate physical leadership. And it's doing the unpopular things. His leader, like a man, uh, he was in charge of two commando uh, just before I got there. And I know for a fact he fired one officer out of the Airborne and one right out of the Army because they were incompetent. That's not a popular thing to do, but mm-hmm. it was the right thing to do. Uh, and that, that's leadership. Yeah, when you get up into the higher levels, whether they want to or not or like to or not or fr- are friends or not, uh, you still don't see people willing to pull the trigger on uh, firing somebody of rank. Yeah, it's, so, it's a big deal. It's yeah. a big deal. But uh, when he heard, when we heard he was taken in late 93, early 94, we heard he was taken over. There were two reactions. One was, oh God. And the other was awesome. Yeah. And I couldn't wait. And he was exactly what the Airborne needed at the time. Yeah. So uh, a couple of things that you mentioned before was you've had a few near-death experiences mm-hmm. were any of those in somalia or is this on the uh, other deployments <laughs> remember i said it wasn't the big things that kill you yeah. um uh that's why i'm curious what are yeah these? so in a fit of eagerness and knowing that i was going to go home any any day uh i come down out of my my sniper bunker on the top of the building and i'm like hey boss i'm gonna go i need to rack out for a few hours and as i was headed down to where my where my cot was, um, I saw one of the American engineers there. 
and I'd been talking to them earlier about something else, and they're like, hey, man, we're going to go blow this thing up. It's not a big deal, but would you mind coming for security? Uh, because often their security is being provided by other units in their military or, or uh, other nations, some of which were less than enthusiastic about being shot at. Um, so I'm like, oh, no, man, 100%, let me grab my stuff. And uh, talk about leaders, very unpopular things. Jerry Scheidel was a rock star sergeant in Tucumana when I got there. And he was one of the guys, like, I wouldn't even go talk to him. He's so freaking cool. You know, like, I wanted to be like Jerry, right? And then one day they're like, hey, man, you're going to go do a, just in training, they're like, you're going to do a four-man reconnaissance patrol with Sergeant Scheidel. I'm like, awesome. So he comes over and he gives my initial information called initial warning. And he's like, oh, yeah, grab your helmet. And I meet kind of a 20-year-old face because we're big, rough, tough paratroopers. We don't wear helmets, man. That's for legs. We dump our helmets off on the drop zone with our parachutes, man. Why the hell are we going to wear helmets? And he wasn't a dick about it. He just looked at me and said, hey, man, just listen, if you get shot in the body, you'll probably live. You get shot in the head, you're probably done. So bring your helmet. We'll strap them on our webbing. We won't wear them on the walk-in, but we'll put them on when we get close to the bad guys. I'm like, oh, cool. So fast forward about four years later, I'm in Somalia, and I'm like, yeah, man, sure, I'll come do security with you. And I went and grabbed my, some of my other kit because uh, we are going outside the base. And uh, I saw my helmet, and I heard Jerry's voice in my head. Grab your helmet. I'm like, fuck, okay. So I put it on, and uh, what we're going to do was to go supposedly blow up some munitions that somebody had found on a soccer field. And when we got there, all that was there was a big steel bomb casing. Okay, about the, I don't know, about the size of a washing machine, a little bigger than a washing machine. But it was empty. All the explosives had been taken out, sitting in the middle of the soccer field. So we're like, it's one of those cases like, hey, man, we came here to blow something up. We're going to blow something up. So the Americans put what's called an earmuff charge. It's two small charges, one on the opposite side, and it, it blows inward and it vaporizes everything inside. Not a big deal. So we back off all of about 70 meters, and I had my left finger in my left ear, and I was bringing my right hand up when I lost consciousness because um, the whole the explosion went off, and what it actually ignited was all the explosives we figured that were buried underneath that bomb casing in the ground. They were cached in the ground, uh-huh. and that steel casing was a marker, Jeez. and it sympathetically detonated um, off the explosion that the Americans set. So... Um, the wall saved us from the blast and my helmet saved me from the wall because mm. it, it fell down and we figured we were less than five minutes before we, we regained consciousness and dug ourselves out. But it seems the whole world, the whole country had come look at us. Jeez. Uh, so yeah, we, we dug each other out and, and, uh, I was concussed as hell. Um, that one, I was still concussed about a year later. Uh, so when they were setting that charge up and they were standing on tons of God, God knows how much explosives. Jeez. We didn't really stick around to do a bomb damage assessment. Uh, but, yeah, there's a big smoking hole in the ground in that soccer field. Huh. Yeah, and uh, we were lucky to survive. And, again, it was just a mud wall that happened to be in the right place. But I lost most of the hearing out of my right ear. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's just an example of a leader like Jerry saying unpopular things and making unpopular things, but good things, right things happened, saved my life over there. Yeah. Yeah, stupid, smallest things. <laughs> Yeah, we we were bombing around the desert in these these armored vehicles, and I'm up in the top in the turret, and the boss, um, Mike Rainbow, is in the commander's hatch just in front of the turret behind the driver, and you know no GPS, man. Uh, we had maps. Sometimes the maps were actually blank, 
like we literally drew them as we went. Mm-hmm. But we're bombing along the desert, and there's a bit of an oasis, like you picture a few few trees and shrubs. And as we came over the hill, the driver was still going about 110 kilometers an hour when we drove into a group of about 20 camels. Yeah. And I'm looking at this, and I look forward, and Mike Rainville has turned backwards with his head and shoulders sticking out of the, the commander's cupola. And he turns around, and he sees the, the camel that's halfway across the road. And like a squirrel making a decision to go back, this camel upended and turned around mid-stride in the middle of the road. Yeah. And, his, and Mike dropped. And I swear he had camel spit on his face because that camel's head bounced off the front of the, the turret and actually damaged the steel. Mm. It might have been a quarter second later, he'd have been dead. No question about it. And it's just the stupid little things like that Jeez. that just happen all the time. Man, yeah. you would think someone, if someone came to invade Canada and you're going to run into a moose out there and that's yeah. what's going to take you out? Yeah, well, hey, how many times, like even on the handy, man, how many times have you heard of, of animal vehicle collisions? Yeah. Look yeah. at our river valley right here, man. Yeah, quite often. Yeah, all the time. So it's it's the small, stupid things. Um, we were, I mean, we were lucky. Uh, talk about leadership. Um, Paul Springer is still a friend of mine. Uh, Paul was looked like an average soldier. Frankly, in a uniform, he looked like a bag of sandwiches standing there. Until we went over to Somalia and he turned into a rock star. Um, in our first few days there, uh, there were shots fired right in the town. So Paul's section takes off about six or eight, 10 guys. And, uh, he, he tells the story way better than I do, but the bottom line is Paul came running around the corner and there were two dudes shooting each other with AKs. And one of them turned his AK on Paul and Paul barely even, even broke stride. He just up and dropped the guy two rounds, uh, to protect the rest of his, uh, his guys. Mm. Um, later on near the end of the tour, uh, the big base of Mogadishu had a really nice beach on a real nice ocean, had some real nice sharks in it. And uh, there's a young woman, I think from Italy, was out there swimming and a shark took her leg off. And so she's screaming and Paul and a couple other guys are on the beach with like inner tubes. And Paul turns to Bob Farquhar, I think, and he goes, well, I guess we're going. And they did. They, uh, they swam out there. I don't know how you chase a shark away, but they did. Uh, drug her back in. Unfortunately, she she bled out in the water. But they went into shark-infested waters with blood in the water and a fin showing. Jeez. Yeah, because it was the right thing to do. Crazy. Yeah, and that's that's leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there. I mean, that's the kind of exceptional people that were just average dudes. Mm-hmm. You know, and you won't really know until until the flag flies, until it's actual time. So it's. It was the best thing I've ever done, and some of it was the worst stuff I've ever done. So, yeah, yeah. What? Um, so we're, we're talking about Somalia quite a bit. You had another deployment, another major one that you were involved in. Yeah, there was some little stuff on the other end of things after uh, after the airborne. Um, I, I got to spend two years in what we used to call battle school, and this is where we train young soldiers. Where I went through in Sunny Wainwright, and. Uh, I did a two-year sentence. I mean, a two-year posting. Right? <laughs> it was a tough place for families, but I had a great time. Worked with a, a pretty well-known guy named Tim Turner. Uh, Tim and I, <laughs> I kind of accidentally started the sniper cell there. Uh, we were asked to go to a competition. We went to the competition, but in preparation, we just started sending emails and making phone calls and stuff. And when we came back, there was our name on the door, sniper cell. So <laughs> we were in the Orbat. So. Spent two years uh, doing mostly teaching sniper stuff, teaching young recruits. 
uh, and then uh, was posted back here to Edmonton. And we started up a sniper section, which didn't exist before in the 1st Battalion PPCLI. And again, there wasn't much going on. And then, boom, we were off to Kosovo. You know, we sent uh, a helicopter group over there. And within a couple of weeks, we realized we were going too. And I referred to it earlier, like we honestly did think going in that we were going up against a Serbian armored division. Like, no joke. Like, these dudes have been fighting a civil war for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And they were backed by Russia. They had some of the latest, greatest kit that the Russians would export. It was for real. And uh, it wasn't until, I think, a couple of days before we went in that they reached a political, uh, a couple of weeks, I'd say, they reached a, a political agreement where the uh, the Russians would pull out. But there were Canadian, uh, we weren't there yet, but there were Canadian tankers uh, in armored vehicles. Uh, not tanks, but armored vehicles are actually supervised the withdrawal of the Serbian forces. It wasn't guaranteed that they were going to, that they were going to withdraw, but they did. Uh, so we went in, and it was more of a uh, peace enforcement. Um, a terrorist organization called the Kosovo Liberation Army had been fighting the Serbs against the ger- Serbian genocide of Albanian-based people, and uh, they fixed to be the uh, the new the new army of Kosovo. Mm-hmm. And that I mean, they were heavily influenced by organized crime, and and some of these guys were flat-out terrorists. So it was our job to make sure they didn't get to be the the, the new army. And again, uh, some of the closest scrapes I had uh, were were in a very low-level conflict. Um, and at the same time, some of the best and some of the worst leadership I saw too. We uh, we went in and did a uh, an observation post on and off uh, for a couple weeks. And uh, the one night we were coming back, we were waiting in the clearing for the helicopters to come and we got the call, helicopters aren't coming. So it happens. I mean, it's helicopters. We used to call them 50-50 squadron. 59% of the time they show up, 50% they wouldn't. So uh, we walked up and over this this mountain crest, this, this mountain pass, uh, not very far, maybe 10, 15, yeah, maybe 10, 15K, uh, up and over this mountain pass through some mined areas uh, got picked up by our own guys in an armored vehicle. And that's acceptable. What wasn't acceptable is the reason there was no helicopter is because our airfield again, back to the UN blueberry thinking, was on strategically unimportant land deliberately put there so mm. that we wouldn't be influencing one side tactically. Like the, in Bosnia, Croatia, uh, former Yugoslavia, they used to inhabit land that was not tactically advantageous. That way, one side or another couldn't attack you and say, oh, we needed the hilltop mm, okay. or we needed the valley, yeah. the valley pass or whatever. So our airfield was on this strategically unimportant piece of land that was also heavily fogged. The only good airport was at that time occupied by the Russians, who we had the use of, but their facilities weren't very comfortable. Hmm. So it wasn't our pilots, but our operations officer at the time made the decision, or it's my understanding, is that he made the decision he didn't want his pilots sleeping in the fog-free but uncomfortable area. He wanted them at home. So we ended up humping our ass over mountain ridge in a mined area because somebody didn't want his pilots to be uncomfortable. Jeez. And that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's poor leadership. Did you end up in uh, any kind of firefights over there? Uh, no. Uh, the ones I was really proud of in Kosovo was the no-shoot decisions we made. And it's the same in Somalia. The ones that I'm proudest of is not the, the shoot decisions, but the no-shoot. Um, in, in Kosovo, there were, I'd say, about four or five times we could have quite within our rights and and 
it's hard to say, but I mean, you know, like there's a time to shoot and a time. Have you ever, you ever had anybody that pointed a gun and made that decision? Oh, we've been close and yeah. decided not to. Um, yeah. I know some guys who have pulled the trigger yeah. on. And, and when you didn't, why? Was there some kind circumstances of circumstances change at yeah. the very last split second? And for me, a lot of the stuff is knowing my capabilities, uh, not necessarily knowing the other person's capabilities that you're facing off with, but, um, you know, just everything you can see in front of you. And then what do I feel comfortable with? And it's crazy how fast that can mm -hmm. process in your head, mm -hmm. but it also afterward, um, knowing all the things you're excluding because you look back at the call, you know, whether it's through radio transmissions or things are said and they're documented on our computer sure. system, like our communications people document certain things. Um, you're like, well, I don't remember hearing that. I don't remember seeing that, but people were calling this out or saying that. Um, but yeah, split second decisions. And it's, it's very hard to uh, flesh out as an example for people to really understand it. Yeah. So, so it's not really a, would you agree that it's, it's not always a fact-based decision or a conscious decision? It's, it's more an intuitive. You just degree, know what's yeah. not right. Yeah. To a degree, yeah. like there's a lot of info coming in, usually more than we can deal with. I mean, I've had a, but uh, you just know. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, like, I've had somebody square off with me holding two, uh, 12 inch kitchen knives. The right in the middle of Jasper Ave. No joke. And I've had my gun drawn. They're within, you know, you, they always talk about the 21 foot 21 rule. Foot. But given other people there, other weapon systems available. Um, and even though all the anger and everything's directed at me, I was the, one of the first ones off. Uh, you know, and I'm trusting, well, that I'm going to make a shot if I need to. But that this other person standing you know over to my right or standing over to the left is going to do their job or not shoot me or something yeah. crazy yep. goes, happens because i mean you never know how things will play out so yeah yeah, yeah. and it it what i'm hearing is that it, you take things in so fast but it's it's largely an intuitive like you may be able to go like i felt like go back after and, and verbalize why i i did or didn't make a shot at any particular time but 100% of the time for me, it was like, eh, I don't have to kill that guy today. Oof. Or that ain't right. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, my partner actually made a really good choice. Uh, I was asleep at the time. We, we had an OP set up. Uh, <laughs> talk about being long way. We were 127 meters from the headquarters of bad guy division. And uh, I was asleep middle of the day. And they had a parade, an inspection. And when we reviewed the video, because we were running video on the finest Best Buy equipment that the Canadian Forces could apply, could provide, off-the-shelf stuff, um, it looked like they got into a bit of an argument. He was lipping off the, the commander, and the commander pulled a gun and stuffed it right in his face, mm. like right up under his chin. And, and my partner, Rick, probably could have shot at that time. But he had enough experience to know that, no, that's... And sure enough, it was just a bluff, and you know, mm. it was posturing. Uh, Rick would have been 100% within his rights to, to do so, but he just knew intuitively. Same thing in, in uh, Mogadishu. Somebody shot up the, uh, the campground of the, uh, like the, the tents of the United Arab Emirates guys, and we got this call, and then 
and it was from the refugee camp. And then I saw this woman run with an AK, squat down by a fire and stick an AK in the in one of the huts. And the, uh, uh, the there's an American officer in charge of the harbor called the Harbor Master. It literally says that on his helmet or on his, his hat, Harbor Master. Anyways, Harbor Master comes up and he's a pretty high ranking dude. And uh, I explain the situation. He's like, well, shoot her. And I'm like, uh, first of all, I'm not in your army. I'm not even in your Navy. And it's just under six months here. I've never seen a woman carry a firearm in the country. And I couldn't verbalize that at the time. And within two minutes, of course, the radio traffic comes in. And it was a dude that shot at them. Mm. So you just, like, I couldn't verbalize why I didn't shoot her. But I didn't because it just wasn't right. Are decisions to shoot or not shoot, uh, is that, like, are you left to make that decision on your own? Or is that always a call from above? Or is it kind of a mix depending on what you're doing? There's a, there's a while, first of all, like, like imagine the police, you, you never abandon your right to self-defense, period. Um, our rules of engagement were poorly structured and poorly verbalized in Somalia, very well and very specific in Kosovo. Um, perhaps there's a lesson learned from Somalia. Uh, the rules of engagement mandated at different times what you could and could not do. The, uh, for example, soldiers in Afghanistan tells me stories of, you know, when they first got there in, in the early 2000s, you know, if there was somebody with a gun, you were shooting them. Yeah. But by the end, you had to be waiting until you were shot at or in Cyprus. Turks and the the, the uh, Greeks would shoot at each other, but if they shot at you, that was different. Mm. So the short answer is it, it depended, but generally, especially as a sniper, that's one of the things we're looking for is judgment. Like we can teach people to press trigger; it's not rocket science, but judgment and uh, decision making is is what we're looking for. Mm. And uh, as a sniper, certainly, and as a as a soldier, you're trusted to make that decision. You're trained and equipped and and practiced. In much like your training, uh, there, there's simulation training, there's situational training, uh, to make it as realistic as possible. Yeah. Uh, so largely it, it comes down to the same means, opportunity, and intent. You know, are they going to hurt me or somebody else? Uh, and whether you're standing two feet away with a bayonet or, or a thousand meters away with a heavy rifle or two kilometers away with a, with a chain gun, uh, it's the same stuff. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's dependent on the rules, but it, it also, you never abandon your right to, to self-defense. Yeah. Well, um, one thing I wanted to make sure that we got to was uh, kind of the outcomes. So from all your experiences and everything you've been through, what are kind of the mental and physical impacts <laughs> that have been, uh, I would say, resulted from you know this long career in the military? And what have you seen with other people? Um, I can... Somebody asked me if I was ever injured, and I'm like, nah, man. Like, I, like, you know, I never got shot, right? And this speaks a little bit of something else I'll touch on in a minute about, about, about Remembrance Day coming up. But um, I don't consider myself that I ever got injured. But remember, I said I got a wall blown down. Somebody said, well, did you get hurt? Anyways, well, like sitting right here right now, there's seven things that hurt on me. and like the old joke you know describe your level of pain oh pretty normal doctor's like no man like no pain is normal you're like oh um you know my feet my ankles uh both knees once had surgery uh my lower back both shoulders and both thumbs right now and no hearing my right ear 
Uh, so there's a physical, there's a physical toll. Mm. I mean, same as you guys, same as you guys. Um, the, the bigger thing is, uh, is the, is the mental toll it takes and that's highly individual. Uh, and we don't really under all we, I think we understand now is that we don't understand mm-hmm. that, I mean, we're doing the best we can after the army, I became a medical radiological technologist which means I mostly did x-rays, but I had a working knowledge of something called functional magnetic resonance imaging where we can monitor the blood flow in the brain as it's thinking. So you can see what you're thinking and you can see what largely. Um, I can hear the MRI tech screaming out there. Um, but, uh, you know, the radiologist is teaching us, he's like, okay, you see this part of the brain? Uh-huh. That, that part's in charge of fear. This is somebody with, with depression. This is somebody with, Look at the size of this guy who's got PTSD. His his parts of his brain in charge of, of stimulus response and fear are like jacked. They're like three times the size of, of a normal person's because they've and and that's that's the physical component of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, your body gets just like a muscle you would work and it becomes larger. The parts of the brain that that are active in a uh, in a uh, response, not even a fear response, but an operational response, like. I got to shoot that guy right there right now. Like the, the part of the decision-making, the brain that, that's there, that gets bigger and bigger and bigger mm-hmm. and stronger and stronger and stronger to the point where it's like reacting to things probably shouldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I always laugh going going for coffee with cops, the same thing with 25 guys trying to sit in the corner of the coffee, coffee room, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's a lifetime of habits and attitudes that are appropriate for a threat environment that can become a problem after. Um, overlapping with that, uh, there's a growing knowledge that um, uh, traumatic brain injury, these symptoms almost 100%, well, about 90% overlap with post-traumatic stress disorder. And compounded on that, um, about the time I was leaving sniping, we started to get the heavier rifles in with muzzle brakes. And muzzle brakes are these devices at the end of the rifle that deflects a great deal of the blast back, and that's to make the rifle more stable during firing, more accurate. That low-velocity blast repeated uh, every time you do it is creating micro tears in your, in your soft gray matter. Mm-hmm. That's the bottom line. The same physician, same neurologist that did the study of concussion for the NFL also completed one for special operations command in, in Canada here. And the bottom line is shooting a 50 caliber rifle to your brain is like being tackled by an NFL linebacker every single time you fire it. Jeez. So it adds up. Yeah. yeah. And I know guys, uh, can absolutely quantify. They fired 125 rounds one day. It's like being tackled 125 times one day. Well, you look at who has the at the longevity of uh, average NFL player. Bingo. I think uh, Lyman is something like three, maybe five years, well, an average one. That's why cops and soldiers get paid as much as NFL linemen, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, so. I mean, the physical, the wear and tear on the body is hard, and, and I'm by no means uh, exceptional in any way. I call myself big bag average. Um, and I mean, the physical toll from training, from training incorrectly, from training with the wrong mindset of that you have to prove yourself and your manhood and your soldiers, the ability every damn day you step out there. Um, professionals now uh, in parts of our militaries, they'll be like, hey, boss, I'm not feeling this run today. I'm going to go like do chest day instead. Cool, man. Go ahead. That didn't exist. It's like you, like it didn't matter. Like I'd been in the airborne like seven years 
And the minute I started to have heart problems and fall back, they were like, oh, you're at the front. Keep driving on. Yeah. You know, so yeah, yeah. Your, your knees are, your, your, your cartilage is torn, but you know, walk it off. Yeah. Um, that mindset is too costly and it's resulted in the physical injuries. And the, uh, I think we're much better in the military from an outsider looking in. I think we're a lot better at, at managing some people's uh, psychological and moral injuries because they're two different things. Um, then we used to be like, when I left Somalia, I was, uh, we were the last plane load out of Canadians. There were still lots of other armies there. Um, and I was shooting people at 10 or 11 a.m. And I was sitting in a luxury bar in Kenya at 2 p.m. And I was home within 24 hours. That was my transition. Now we're smart guys that came back from Afghanistan. They spent, I think, three or five days in, in, uh, in Cyprus, kind of uh, blow off some of that steam, do a little bit of the mental, emotional processing, and then some follow-up work back home. Uh, the Brits, when they brought their soldiers home from Falklands in the early 80s, they brought them back by boat on purpose for a month and a half and so went they slow. all hang out together, talk. Yeah. Emotionally process what just happened. Mm-hmm. They could have flown them all home in a day. They had the other left, but they floated them home. Mm-hmm. That was done on purpose. One thing I think is, uh, I've never seen this come up, but I was kind of thinking about it the other day was, I don't think a lot of of the guys want to come back straight away to family. I think no. you want to, <laughs> uh, whether it's because you want to hang out with your your friends, your your buddies your that you just went through all this stuff with, yep. um, whether that's for the mental health aspect, uh, or maybe they just don't know they're doing it for that reason. Yeah. But that's who they want to be around. You feel the most comfortable around. Yeah. Because uh, they do get to be a family. Oh, after a while. Absolutely. So lifetime. Yeah. They are my family. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 22 year old me couldn't have used any of those words, but uh, absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You may not know why, but that's that's absolutely true. Um, and I, the, I think the, the worst that we've had in, in my living history is the reservists that were unfortunately nece- necessarily attached to reg force units. You know, they come back from Bosnia or, or Afghanistan on a Thursday and, uh, they'd report Friday and then like the, the full-time professional guys would be like, they'd have six months to a year follow-up. Well, Private Smith from North Battleford sitting there on his own for the next forever yeah yeah it's a tough transition well it's hard you go back uh and you know what i've i've never experienced i was in the military but i just know from day-to-day work i could do a full set four days and you can see some of the craziest shit in four days Mm. and then you just get home and off night shift and it's like i still got to take another hour or two and i'm just kind of winding down i can't even imagine that's true brains just going and going and going that's not like you're um I wouldn't say you're upset about anything. It's just, there's just so much going on and your mind is still going. Yeah. Uh, even when I get home, I'm just like, oh, I got to do this and I got to do that. And I know these other things tomorrow. Like I'm just thinking and about the rest other, of the world's like, had a normal four days. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, why aren't, yeah. You know, like I talked about earlier about, you know, you would be there. I would be there come hell or high water. Mm-hmm. Like it's the old joke, you know, the, the veteran goes to school and it's like the professor's like, Hey, your, your paper is one day late. Do you know what happens? Oh, people die. It's like, no, man, I dock 5%. What's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, like, so you're coming off of that. I can't even imagine you're coming off of that emotional roller coaster, still trying to emotionally process it. 
and all your loved ones and everybody else around you is just having a normal day. Like that must be a surreal experience. Well, and then, you know, everyone else is just going on with life. <laughs> so Doing normal stuff. you wake up and it's like, okay, get back to dealing with this or family or whatever yeah. else. And it's like, you can't even put into words all the stuff that's happened. Yeah. And then to kind of repeat that week after week after week. And then that's year. What I'm talking about. I can't imagine. Yeah. Even the last, you know, I've been around 10 years doing this and everything's been operational. And yeah. uh, so you're, you're in the thick of it every single day. Yeah. So yeah, you definitely see a lot. And it, at this point after, especially doing a lot of the podcasts and talking to the people I talk to, uh, you start to see a lot of this now and it's, it's very mm-hmm. interesting and for people to contextualize a lot of it. Uh, I think that's what's missing is a lot of people don't know how to do that. So <laughs> we need more experts on these things to, or people who have had the experience. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I also see an increased conversation about it. And there is absolutely need for professionals. I had a, a, a great therapy session with my shrink this morning. It was awesome. Um, and it's very, very necessary because I can, I can be your, your, brother or sister officer and I can sit with you and I can, you know, I can, I can hear your stories and I can do mental first aid with you, mm. but at a certain time you need to go see a surgeon. Yeah. And that is just a mature decision. Um, even more so talk about leadership. Uh, you don't have to be a ranked position to show leadership. You can be the first guy in your, in your squad to go like, Hey man, I'm not going to be there tomorrow morning. Cause I'm going to go see my, my shrink. I need to go and talk this out that gives social permission for your peers. Mm-hmm. And if you're in any rank position for your subordinates, remember I talked about that switched or bat order of battle. Yeah. Okay. That's your responsibility as a leader of any kind to model that behavior. Say, Hey, like this isn't working for me. I need to go and sort this out before it becomes a problem because I'm a grown up and I'm a professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's happening a little bit more. So it needs to be a conversation between peers and it needs to be acknowledging that there's a time and a place for professionals too. And that it's it's professional, it's correct, it's good and right and true to go and get that help. Yeah. Because um, it's much better to just push it all down. That works <laughs> so well for me. Um, or did for about 10 years till the wheels fell off. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't want to over-dramatize this, but when I look around my my peer group of operational snipers, not the guys who took the course, but like the guys who actually went and worked, it's almost 100% PTSD. I say virtually. I'm, I'm struggling to think of one guy who isn't because you're out there in ones or twos or fours, and that's it. Mm-hmm. You have to be switched on for 72 hours a week straight, and that that does physiological things to your brain, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a... And, that's kind of what I think of you guys. You 12 on, 12 off for four days at a time, 365 X number of years. That adds up. Yeah. And the professional among you will go in and get that stuff sorted out. Just like going to a physiotherapist because your shoulder hurts or getting a better belt because your back hurts. Yeah. You know, going and getting some, some art therapy or some music therapy or, or just some time in nature, whatever does it for you. That's the same thing as going and getting a better belt. It's just preventing injuries. So. I was like going out to the shooting range. Hell yeah. Talking to, uh, I was at the Cairo and they were asking like, oh, what'd you get up to this weekend? It's like, uh, or well, my weekend, mm-hmm. which is weekdays. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I went out to the shooting range. I'm like, that's, I know that's 
uh, relaxing or peaceful for you? Absolutely. <laughs> I was like, yeah, just because something makes a bang noise every once in a while, it's like, yeah, but I'm out there and talking to people. I'm, um, you know, practicing. Uh, I'm focused. Like, there's a lot to it. So, yeah, yeah. We call it group therapy, mm-hmm. and it's often counterintuitive, but we we actually do as part of what I do that the CR six four rifle crafting for. Uh, for veterans, I'll, I'll get guys out there, and even active duty guys, and I'll, I'll teach them all this behavior. It's good to get out to the range, get in behind the scope, in my case, or sights on a pistol. It's the same thing. And for one to two to four to eight hours, you're not thinking. You're training your brain to think of something other just to give yourself a break. Still got to go and deal with that stuff afterwards. Mm-hmm. But I call it gr- golf for grownups. Yeah. Um, it's the same thing. <laughs> I hate it, golf, but... but uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I call it group therapy and getting out behind a rifle with with your peers is, uh, to me, it has almost more importance than just maintaining your marksmanship abilities, which are obviously an important job skill in both both uh, both areas. Mm-hmm. But the the mental management that I that I preach and teach, uh, it's it's not just good therapy for me or for for the the guys who are already trained and experienced. But uh, that's what the army had me like. They don't need me to go and teach a guy to press trigger. It's, like I say, it's not hard. Uh, but what I can do is I can talk to these guys and model and explain behavior, habits, and attitudes that will not only make them better snipers, but will improve their life now and after and try and try and prevent and just model behavior talking about it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it just helps. So um, coming up on almost two hours, I wanted to make sure we cover is there anything we missed that you had on your list that you want to get to no man just just uh like we talked earlier it's easy to say we stand on the shoulders of giants but i, I want to reiterate that any success i've had has been because of the people that invested in me and that i've taken the time and energy to learn from mm-hmm. and that includes right from today and to so pass it on it. keep passing it on yeah so. absolutely all right well i want to say thanks for coming in again and kind of on short notice, but thanks again. Um, and I hope to have uh, a few more guys in and see if we can get them to talk about their experiences. And uh, I think it's kind of good to get it out there. I hope it helps. And for other people listening, I hope it helps them. Absolutely. If anybody is interested in the mental management or or the uh, uh, the support element of it, uh, you can reach me at Sierra, then the number six, four, Riflecraft. So Sierra six four riflecraft at gmail.com and more than happy to do what we can when we can for anybody who needs it. Great. And I'll put those links on the episode when it well, goes out too. So they're also on the episode that went out today, like the broader one that we one. talked about yeah. with you. Um, so yeah, they're available. Excellent. Okay. Great. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>